This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, I am just beyond excited about today's guest, one of the most legendary Bible educators in my own Jewish community since literally 1985, but who's also been constantly innovating from his writings to podcasting, and who on top of all of that is the author of the phenomenal Between the Lines of the Bible commentaries. He's Rabbi Yitzchak Et Shalom, and we're going to talk about techniques for reading biblical literature, which of course feels so, uh, so appropriate for this time of year, because after all... Uh, at least in my community, in the Jewish community, this week begins the biblical holiday of Passover, first prescribed in the book of Exodus. Now, the narrative of the Exodus from Egypt is probably the most iconic and influential narrative in the history of humanity in a world dominated for most of the last, you know, like 4,300 years by empires and conquerors of all stripes. It was this story, a story about a God who cares for slaves and has contempt for tyrants that truly conquered the world. And in the history of this country, the United States of America had played a central role at so many of the most crucial moments in our national story, from the Pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock, to the decision to revolt against England, to the operation of the Underground Railroad, to Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement, and beyond and beyond. It's a larger-than-life narrative that helps us frame so much of our national memory. But I think, for that very reason, we tend to think of the story, and perhaps by extension even the entire Bible itself, as static. I mean, we all know the dramatic beats. We all know who speaks when and what happens next. And we can forget how alive, how electrifying the text can be. I mean, every single generation can find new meaning in it. And the last few decades in particular have seen some of the most exciting examples of this in history. And yet it often seems to me that the wider world of people interested in the Bible, from Bible Twitter to people interested in Western civics to just casual readers, aren't aware of some of this amazing, exciting work. And so to talk about it and to talk about the Bible generally, I brought on one of the best teachers of the Bible I know who actually literally wrote entire awesome books about this very topic, the amazing Rabbi Yitzchak Et Shalom. Rabbi Et Shalom, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rabari. It's great to be here. One of the questions I get most frequently, whether on Twitter because of the, you know, my Why Read the Bible in Hebrew Twitter threads or by listeners of this podcast or from people in the media who are just interested, is how do Jews read the Bible? Now, you know, that's like a, a very thorny, difficult question. We've been we've been at this for quite some time. This isn't our first go around with the Bible. But one thing that I think really surprises people is uh, a lot of the just fresh, creative, interesting ways that we interpret the Bible and a lot of that capacity for really interesting interpretation is both rooted in ancient reading practices that go all the way back to the to rabbinic literature, but that have been honed and taken in really interesting directions, particularly in the last couple of decades, both in the United States and in the land of Israel. And I'm curious if you would be able to speak a little bit about how, as a legendary teacher of the Bible, both in a you know, in a high school setting, as well as in kind of a postgraduate setting, and we'll, we'll get to both of those things in a second. How do you think about, first of all, 
you know, your technique for interpreting biblical literature, and what are some of the interesting developments in the study of biblical literature that get you most excited from the from the recent past? Okay, how many days do we have? <laughs> we have this is the this is the most the world's most dangerous Bible podcast. We have as long as you want. <laughs> Good, because uh, Passover is coming soon. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to start by addressing the question that you posed as somewhat of a rhetorical question, because you didn't ask me for an answer. I'm going to answer it anyways. How do Jews read the Bible? The answer is a million and one ways. One of the remarkable things about Jewish study is that our Bible comes with multiple commentaries. As a matter of fact, the very first Hebrew book to be published, to be printed, when the, the advent of the printing press, was not a Bible. It was a Bible with a commentary. The first five books of the, of the Bible, the Torah, with the commentary of Rashi, which kind of tells you something about how we look at it. But what's even more remarkable is one of the earliest books printed and one of the most popular books on every Jew's bookshelf is a book we call Mikraot Gedolot. In English, we call it the Rabbi's Bible. And you open up any page and you will see a small amount of the text of the Bible and then anywhere between 3 to 15 different commentaries, most of them from the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, and a few of them more recent. And they're doing battle on the page with each other about the meaning of the text, about the import of the text, of the message of the text. Often it rolls back to the actual meaning of words or the realia, the reality behind it. And I think this is a marvelous statement about answering your question of how Jews read the text. The answer is, I read it one way, and you read it another way. And our friends, um, our dear friend uh, Rabbi Adlerstein reads it a third way. And the three of us sit together, and we share how we read it. We sit together on the internet, we sit together in writing, or we sit together around a table, around a Friday night Shabbat table. And we share how we look at it. And what the interesting thing is, is that when you become more advanced in your study, your position is not to battle over who's right, but rather to enjoy the other person's perspective and say, you've just broadened my understanding of the text, but I'm still more taken with this particular way. It may be that in a particular passage, I find the comments of Nachmanides, the great 13th century Spanish exegete. I might find them the most inspiring and meaningful. And you may be more moved by the comments of Rabbi Ovadia of Siporno, 15th century Italy. That's great. By the way, I got news for you. Next year, I might get more excited by the Siporno. Right, right. And what the great thing about that is, is like, as I tell students all the time, the tent of Torah is a wide tent. It does have a door. And there is such a thing as outside. But the tent is quite wide. So people who come in with different perspectives, if their perspectives are inside that very wide tent, are worthy of listening to and of weighing, and maybe at the end saying, I'm not moved by that interpretation, but if that works for you, that's great. So the short answer to how do Jews read the, read the Bible is there's no answer to it. There's so many answers, there's no single answer. However, there is also a tradition that leads to that dialogue on the page a dialogue across generations, which I like to call a multi-generational symphony. Because ultimately, when you sit back and read and engage with the different voices from northern France in the 11th century and from 
Eastern Europe in the 19th century and everything in between. And up until Alon Shvut in Israel in the 21st century, in Jerusalem in the 21st century, what you see is that there is this broad palette of all sorts of different ways in which we look at it, but which are all driven by one principle. We do not read the Bible devotionally. We read the Bible critically. Critical Bible study did not start with Germany in the 18th century and with Wellhausen and his group. Critical reading of the Bible starts with the rabbis. It starts in the first century and perhaps even earlier. When we're looking at text and saying, wait, how come this phrase is worded differently than we're accustomed to? We're accustomed to seeing one example of an item in a legal text, and here there's four examples. Why are there four examples? And that critical mode of thinking leads to developing an understanding of the text, which is far more nuanced, far more textured, to the point where I'm going to say something which is heretical. Now, I'm sure on your podcast, you're used to heresies, (laughs) right? I love the Bible. I love the Tanakh, as we call it, the Hebrew Bible. I love it dearly. I teach it. I write about it. And yet, the most important book on my shelf is not a Bible. It's the Talmud. It is that compendium of interpretations and carrying the text forward and the conceptual analysis and everything that has developed from that core, which is the Bible. And everybody who's invested in the Talmud, including the rabbis in the Talmud themselves, recognize that it all starts with the Bible. It all starts really with the Torah. And it all starts at a very powerful moment in Mount Sinai when God made a covenant with us and gave us this law with the narratives, with the poetry, with everything else. And then everything develops from there. There actually is a a heated debate uh, raging on Twitter now, and it's spilled off of Twitter on Bible Twitter. And it's over precisely the point that you just brought up about the value or lack thereof, or maybe extra value thereof, of devotional style reading of the Bible. It was initiated by friend of the pod, Drew Johnson, shouts to Drew Johnson of the Center for Hebraic Studies at the King's College, and a wonderful Bible scholar. I've been on his podcast, he's been on my podcast, and he argued that the daily devotional style reading of scripture, while it has its uses, right, the practice of kind of reading, a, you know, let's say a verse a day from scripture and trying to wring as much meaning out of it as you can, it has its place. But, you know, he was he encourages his students to see verses kind of in the larger context of scripture, like reading larger narratives, uh, trying to understand connections between texts. So, you know, trying to read one verse totally out of context and assuming that you can wring meaning from it is almost presumptuous when it comes to to scripture. Now, one of the things that you said, I think, became a sore point in the debate, which is, well, why we should be reading scripture like critics. And I think that the the retort to that within kind of the Jewish community of, of biblical readers is what you think German heretics, you know, in the 19th century invented asking questions of the text. Like you think they were the first people to discover asking questions of the text. And that's why they're able to treat the Bible like a bunch of fairy tales. We've been asking questions, tough questions about the text for millennia. And I think that that's why that perspective is so is so powerful. How do you think about that 
that critical endeavor? Like, you know, what's an example of a text that you would approach and say, hey, here's a way of asking questions about the text that can show you that, you know, just because you're not a critic, you know, German critical Bible academic in Berlin or a similarly situated person in Berkeley or in Princeton Theological Seminary, you can actually still and must and should ask critical questions of the text in a way that that doesn't detract from your appreciation of the majesty of of the Bible, but actually enhances it and deepens your understanding of the text. I will give you I'll answer by giving exa- an example of something I do as an opening activity with some of my senior students, senior high school, that is, pretty much every time that I start a Bible seminar with them. First of all, I play a little game of what we call Jeopardy, because we run it like Jeopardy, and I will run run the game and ask them, okay, identify how long did creation take? And I, and I say right away, I'm not asking you what you believe. I'm asking you what you think the Bible says. How long did creation take? Uh, how was woman created? Uh, what was created first, animals or people? I ask about five questions like that. Okay, and they put down their answers. And then we run it on the board, right? And on the board, when they give their answers, I put up a letter A and a letter B on two sides of the board, and when they answer seven days, and somebody else has six days, and they get in a big fight about whether the Sabbath counts, uh, so I say, okay, fine, I put a six slash seven under A. And then when I say, okay, how was woman created? They say, oh, Adam was put to sleep, and God took a rib out. So I said, okay, maybe it wasn't a rib, maybe it was a side, but I get what you mean, and I put that under B. And they have no idea what A or B is. And I go through with about 10 questions like that, and there, and some of them give answers that go on A, and some of them give answers B. For instance, what was created first, animals or people? People say animals are first. I put that under A. People were created first. I put that under B. Right? And then when all that's done, I divide them into two groups. And I have the same questions on a piece of paper, and I tell them, you read Genesis 1 through 1, 1, 1 through 2, 3. And you read Genesis 2, 4 to the end of chapter 2. And each of you answer your questions. And the eyes that pop, and what I find interesting, exciting, and to be honest with you, a little bit disappointing, is how many eyes are popping because they've never seen this before. And these are seniors who have gone through 12 years, at least, of Jewish education. And it's the first time that they're seeing that there's two different stories of creation that are not harmonious. They're at odds with each other. And they get very upset and very confused. And I say, okay, how could we possibly answer these questions? So some of them have heard a, harmoniza- a harmonization model where they say that the first story is talking about the general story and the second is getting detailed about the creation of man. But at some point, that doesn't really work. And then I show them a midrash a rabbinic comment from the 11th century in the Midrash Bereshit Rabbati, in which the rabbis say, God originally wanted to create the world with a measure only of justice. And therefore, the name used for God in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is Elohim, which is also a name for a court or a lordly person or a master. And as a result of that, we understand that name to reflect God as a stern judge, as an exacting judge. The Midrash says God originally wanted to create the world that way, saw that the world could not last that way, and therefore he mixed in a component of compassion. 
When you start reading chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through that story, you read suddenly every time God's name is mentioned, it's the four-letter word of God, with the yod and the hey and the vav and the hey, which we understand to reflect compassion, along with Elohim. It's not only compassion, it's compassion and justice. So I say, okay, that's the nice Midrash, and it's quoted, by the way, by none other than Rashi, at the very beginning of his commentary. I said, what do you make of that? And so we get in a discussion, and I try to lead them around to realization that according to that comment, chapter one never happened. Chapter one was a plan, and chapter two was what actually happened. Chapter one was the ideal, but the ideal never happened because it's not an ideal world. And then at some point later in the year, I often will get to a biblical Bible criticism seminar so that they're ready when they go to college in case they're going not to Yeshiva University, and they're going to be attending classes where they'll be hearing this, that they should be prepared and understand we have a position on it. Suddenly I say, okay, now think back to what we did at the beginning of the year. And now you see that chapter one and chapter two aren't at odds with each other. One's the plan, one's the manifest. That's one way to look at it. There may be other ways to look at it. But when they find out that this was something that was challenged and answered and, 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 and dealt with 800 years, 700 years before Astruk and before a graph, and before Wellhausen, it's pretty impressive. So say, this is how we, we've been looking at text the whole time. We look at it critically. Now, I'm going to distinguish between two words, and even though they seem to hang together. One is critically, one is critics. We have always studied the Bible critically. But what does it mean to study critically? To study critically doesn't mean to look at it askance, to look at it in a negating fashion. It means to look at it thoughtfully and actually think about it as a text that you're supposed to interact with, and not just read it blindly, which is itself an oxymoron, I guess, uh, but to hear it blindly, but rather to work with it, to challenge with it. The word that we have in a blessing that we make every morning, because we're going to study Torah, is la'asok b'divrei Torah, to engage in the study of Torah. We don't just listen to Torah, we don't just repeat Torah, we engage, we wrestle with it. And so, and see that that's the actual model of how we're to study. However, the word critic, whether accurate or not, takes on a nuance of someone who is an opponent of something and who's somebody who's trying to take it down. And so I avoid using the word Bible critic when, when describing any of my colleagues um, or anybody who's in, in, in the camp of traditional believers whether Jewish or otherwise. But we all study critically. It's a fantastic point. And, you know, like I, I often tell people, you know, like when I do these like Twitter threads, for example, I'll get, I, in the beginning, I got it more because now that I've shown that I don't have tolerance for it, they, they kind of stay away from me. But, you know, I'd get like, you know, Bible critics, like real academics sort of saying, well, have you considered that uh, the holistic meanings that you're finding, like really, there's just, you know, different, I say, listen, I'm like the kind of, I'm a religious fundamentalist, right? Like I'm the kind of guy who believes all the things you think are nuts, you think are nuts, right? I believe there was a revelation at Sinai. I believe the Bible is divine. I believe blah, blah, blah. And people typically respond to that with like surprise, sort of like, but you know, the way you're reading the Bible is like, it's like reasonable. I'm like, yeah, like people who believe in God and in the divinity of the Bible, like can read critically. We've been doing it for like millennia already. I want to kind of branch out from there to a, a methodological issue, which is uh, another 
question I often get is about reading strategy. And I think one of the big challenges that people who, for example, haven't yet read the Bible in Hebrew or don't regularly study it in the original Hebrew, there are all sorts of assumptions that you bring to the text purely by virtue of having been raised uh, with a native tongue that is sort of like half Germanic and half Romance, right? Like the English language, right? So we're the heirs of both this like Anglo-Saxon linguistic tradition and this, you know, Norman French linguistic tradition, which makes it so that as Orwell pointed out, and as Orwell is very frustrated by, they're basically at least two words for everything in the in the English language. And in some cases, many, many more than that. So good English style leverages the the vastitude of the vocabulary and tries to use varied and variegated language for describing things. So, you know, good style means that you're, you know, can often sound like, you know, you have a good vocabulary. And if you want to parody good style, you know, you kind of go to extremes to do that. So then you, you know, you put every word through a thesaurus and it ends up sounding ridiculous. But because of that, people who are used to English style assume that the way that you create uh, good aesthetics in literature is by leveraging a large vocabulary. Whereas biblical literature does almost exactly the opposite. Biblical Hebrew has a relatively limited vocabulary and Semitic languages in general, you know, have have smaller vocabularies. And, and in addition to that, biblical literature is and was uh, and remains today uh, a performance literature, right? So in the, you know, in the traditional Jewish community, like in the Orthodox community, for example, that we're both from, we read from the Bible in front of a crowd on a regular basis. That's how most of us hear the Bible on a regular occasion, you know, on regular occasions. And throughout its history, it was meant to be kind of performed. So because of that, the way that aesthetics gets done, and I often have to explain this to people, the way that aesthetics gets done in the Bible is through using words repetitive, what sounds like repetitively, but really in a way to kind of communicate to the reader or to the listener that this context should be compared to that context where a similar word or maybe an identical word is used, or this story is connected to that story because they're both using similar, similar words, similar phrases, etc. And that in many respects, as I, you know, explain to readers and listeners all the time is kind of a, a hallmark of good biblical style. And therefore it seems to me that any methodology for reading for reading biblical literature should should kind of be aware of how to make use of those keywords. So as you are teaching, you know, the Hebrew Bible, as you are studying it yourself and, and teaching about it, how do you integrate that kind of style of study, the making use of keywords and, you know, in this text that resonate with that text? And, and are there any examples of that kind of study that that particularly enthrall you? Sure. First of all, I, I remind my students of all ages, um, that even the text that we regard as a written text, you know, in our tradition, we distinguish between the written Torah, which is the Bible, and the oral tradition, which is all written down, but the oral tradition, right. which is the Talmudic tradition, Midrashic tradition, etc., which for hundreds of years was transmitted orally. Nevertheless, we have to realize that the written tradition was originally an oral tradition too, which means I want you to look at the words, but I also want you to close your eyes and hear the words. And listen for alliteration, listen for related words, listen for repeated words, right? And when I first teach a, po a poem, whether it's the Song of Moses at the Sea, or the Song of Moses Before He Dies, which I don't teach often, or the Song of Deborah, 
or even a much smaller song like the song at the well in Numbers 21. I will have the, the students listen for particular patterns and identify unusual words. Now, they don't know the Bible well enough to know they're unusual. That's when I teach them to use the concordance. And they look up a word and they say, it only shows up one time right here. So we see it's an unusual word. So then I show them the nuances of song. And then what I do all the time is I will say, okay, now let's be in the story. Picture it. What's happening? Here we're standing at a well and these guys are singing. Where are we? Who's hearing this? And what is it that we're hearing? We're standing at the, at the Reed Sea in the morning. The Reed Sea has just collapsed in and on, on itself. And the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the Middle East, has just been wiped out. And we're watching it. So that so I try to make it part of our, our own reaction. And then hear the words and be there and listen. And then the second thing is be there and look. Be in the story, always be in the story, and look at the words and what do you see? Besides the fact that graphically words are sometimes laid out in an unusual fashion, like in a poem, look for words that repeat because it's a little easier to see them than to hear them. And so, for instance, uh, we're studying, okay, I'll take a famous story, Exodus 3, 1 through 4, 17, which is Moses' inauguration at the bush. By the way, for your listeners, if you haven't done it yet, go online and take a take, look at Mount Kharkom, K-H-A-R-K-O-M, and look at the pictures there. It'll blow your mind. All right, but I'm not <laughs> going to give anything more away. Look at it, and, and you'll see. You take a look at that story, and you assume that the story is about the Exodus. It's about God introducing himself after many generations of silence and talking to man and now choosing a new leader and and sending him with the message to the people and sending the message to Pharaoh and giving him signs and everything else. And you think it's about the Exodus, and it sort of is. And then you suddenly discover a technique, which I demonstrate to the students with about six or seven examples of something we call the light vert or the keyword. And notice that the biblical authors, which are all inspired by the biblical author, capital A, have a particular style where they will use a keyword X amount of times, and the X is usually seven or some multiple of seven. Just kept te- keep testing it out. Look at chapter one of Genesis. The keyword is tov, good, and that word shows up seven times in that in that section. So that's the theme of this: that the world's blueprint is good. All right, as an example. So I say, now I want you to see if there's any word or name that pops up in this section that shows up seven or some multiple. It takes a little while because they start picking up words. And then, and by the way, it's fun for them because they're just a puzzle. And then they suddenly see Moses' name shows up 14 times. I said, oh, so maybe the story is more about Moses' inauguration than about anything else. And then we kind of take a, a 90 degree turn, not more than that, at looking at this story as from the perspective of not so much the mission, but the the inauguration. So we'll do things of that sort to get, sensitize them to the way that language plays out. Something else, I'm not sure if this is the direction you're asking, but something else that I'll do often in class to try to bring the Bible into their own interest field and to make it much more more timely, and it's something that we can only really do, have done in the last hundred years, is to show them where stuff happens. And if at all possible, show them with camera feed or with pictures from the land of Israel and show them where this stuff is taking place. 
to tell them stories about my own visit several times to the Arab village of Burj Beitin, which is the biblical site of Bethel, where Jacob had his famous vision. To see, here I'm sitting in the room with my teacher, and my teacher was there, and I can go to Israel because I'll be going next year for my gap year to study, and I can go and I can visit these places. Something makes it much more real. For our second youngest son's bar mitzvah trip, we went to Israel, and we went with the Israeli army into the valley of Dotan. And we went to the spot where Joseph was thrown into the pit. And that place is actually called by the locals the Cistern of Joseph. Now, when you're standing there and you look at it, suddenly you step back and you see where you have to be sitting in order to see the caravan traveling from Gilad going to Egypt. And you realize the brothers could not have been next to the pit at the time, which, of course, supports the opinion that we have among our commentaries that the brothers never sold Joseph. By the time they got there, he was gone. The Midianites had sold him. But that only happens when you're there, or at the very least can show pictures of being there. So there's so much that brings the Bible alive today. There are numerous other things that that we have inherited either from new reality, from new um, disciplines that maybe started out in the secular world or in the world of secular academia that took a while before there was a comfort level with integrating them into Bible study. And now, at least in Jewish Bible study, they were accepted in the world of Christian Bible study much earlier. But in Jewish Bible study, they have now become de rigueur. So that's why a fellow like our friend, Professor Joshua Berman, who is really doing great work with Egyptology and the book of Exodus, that couldn't have happened 50 years ago or even 40 years ago. It took a while until Egyptology, as an example, became an acceptable means of understanding the text. One of the really fascinating things about biblical study as you just put it, is kind of using a wide variety of disciplines to help us extract that divine meaning out of the text and and really appreciate its majesty, its artistry, and its resonance for our own lives. And one of those things, I think, is political philosophy. And a good example of that is we, we sort of, you know, you read some of the stories that that Hollywood has made famous, whether it's the Exodus, whether it's Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, you know, whether it's Joshua and the walls of Jericho. These are sort of the kinds of stories that we're, we're used to telling in our own modern context because they have, you know, biblical literature doesn't have heroes in the same way that Greek and Roman literature did. Like, we don't have an Achilles or a Hercules. But, you know, you can identify, like, a protagonist, dramatic stakes, and, you know, a beginning, middle, and an end of a narrative. Um, you know, a first and second and third act. Once you get, however, to essentially the center of the Bible, you know, and once you get to the end of the Bible, you have a lot of liturgy and poetry and, and wisdom, etc. You know, like the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's only in the end of your book. That's not necessarily, not necessarily the end of the biblical period. True, true, true. That, and that's kind of the point that I'm making, right? So in the in the center of the book, and moreover, you know, if you're looking at just from a 
chronological standpoint, like the majority of the biblical of the period that the Bible spans, the key texts are political texts. And you're dealing with a list of kings and eventually two lists of kings, right? Because, you know, after after Solomon dies, you know, and Rehoboam takes the throne, the the kingdom splits into two, a northern part and a southern part. Uh, you're dealing with lists of kings and just things that happen during the during the reigns of those kings that don't necessarily kind of have that like satisfying dramatic structure that we're used to from like Genesis. And yet that literature, whether it's, you know, political historical books for for lack of a better term, I guess, but like, you know, political history books like the Book of Kings or Chronicles or maybe a little bit earlier, the Book of Judges, where you, you do get narratives in the Book of Judges. But whether it's those works or I think more more prominently, the prophetic works that are commenting on those periods, whether it's Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah and going go down the line, you get texts that without knowing the historical context, just kind of sound as if they're, you know, either repetitive or unclear why, you know, they're being written in the first place. And it's in many respects, you know, one of the the great blessings of modernity has been we've been able to recover a little bit more about those periods than than was accessible previously. So we kind of have new ways to study. For example, you know, you've been you you have spent the last couple of years just teaching extensively, for example, about the book of Amos. And there's so much that we can that we can glean from a book like that, that if you're just reading it as like a series of disconnected verses or a series of verses that have, you know, disconnected from from the, the actual events it was commentating on, just kind of sound like, well, what's the what's the difference between Amos and Ezekiel or Amos and Isaiah? They're basically the same book, just with a different name. Right. So if you're looking to get a handle on prophetic literature, which is, I mean, in a, even in just an American context, like some of the most important biblical influences on American civics and American history have been from the prophetic books, whether it's Martin Luther King drawing on Amos and, and Hosea, whether it's Frederick Douglass drawing on Isaiah and Ezekiel uh, and Jeremiah. How do you get started with a work like this? You know, how do you get started in one of the prophetic works and really understanding its meaning, its, its, its structure and its message? Okay, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and the, the answer is going to be complex and challenging. Okay, the first thing is you need to learn Hebrew, right? And by the way, I want it just for listeners. I know that sounds like a tall order. It totally can be done. I have taught my, I've taught it myself with the Catherine Project, for example. Shouts to Zena Hits, friend of the pod, legend on Twitter. We love her. I taught a class for the Catherine Project where we took students, and I hope they're listening now. We took a group of five students from literally not even being able to recognize the alphabet to an eight weeks, to rather an eight months being, you know, of studying once or twice a week, you know, and a class on Zoom, being able to read through, you know, Genesis's account of the binding of Isaac in the original Hebrew basically on their own, and they've continued reading even without me. So it is doable. Don't think it's not doable. Oh, and Friend of the Pod also, Biblingo. Uh, we've done promos for them before. I've done promos for them on Twitter. There's so many resources. You can study Hebrew. It's totally doable. So anyway, sorry, yes. No, that's that's a good interruption. Uh, it's important <laughs> people to know that it's accessible, but it does take work. And one of my arguments for the fact that I will not allow students to bring a translated Bible into class, they must bring the Hebrew-only Bible, Typically, I like to use the Koran one just because it's accessible. And then we were all literally on the same page is a verse in, in Amos where Amos is decrying the uh, the attendance of the people 
to worship sites at Gilgal and Beit El. And in it, he says the following line. Excuse my Hebrew. Ha, no, I'm not going to ask for that. I'm going to do it in Hebrew. Ki ha Gilgal galo Now, that makes no sense in English. You would translate it, Gilgal shall certainly go into exile, and Beit El will become a place of iniquity. Makes no sense. First of all, Gilgal means round rock, and that's why that place is called Gilgal. There's a bunch of round rocks there. There's about five different places called Gilgal throughout the land of Israel. And Galo Yigla means to be exiled. But when you sound them together, the onomatopoeia there is very powerful. It doesn't work in translation. I point to this verse and I say, how can I teach this in English? It makes no sense. Or in any other language but the original. So that's first of all. It's important to be able to read in the original. And that becomes critical because when the prophets are attacking, are making fun of, are comforting, whatever it might be, the royal house, the, the priesthood, the poor, whatever they might be, whatever their audience might be, they are using wordplay, which is going to be lost on you unless you're looking in the original. That's A. B, you must have fluency with the section that we call early prophets, which is a misnomer. What it really means is those books of the Bible that are the history of the Jewish people in their land, which is from the beginning of Joshua to the end of Kings. And the beginning of Joshua and the end of Kings has really got bookends, which is at the beginning we enter the land, and then we do what we do in the land, and at the very end of Kings we're exiled from the land. You need to have a handle on that history, even the parts of the history that are not what you're studying in Isaiah. For instance, if you're studying Isaiah, so the period in Isaiah, or at least first Isaiah, the first 39 chapters minus chapter 35 or so, you're studying that part of Isaiah, you're studying the Assyrian period. And you're studying the period during which Ezekiel is the king over Judea. But you need to have the background from the book of Joshua in order to be able to understand what the context is there. So first of all, you certainly need to know 2 Kings 17, 18, 19, 20, where Isaiah, by the way, makes an appearance, in order to, to get a sense of the period and what's going on to understand his, his prophetic words, to understand who he's talking about when he says that the young man shall know, shall reject evil and the prince of peace, etc. He's talking about Ezekiel. But you can see that in the context. That's A. B, and this certainly would come first, is you need to know the Torah. Because if you don't know what the Torah, what the laws and the values and the theological messages of the Torah, which are pretty overt and pretty explicit, then you can't understand what the decrying is. There's no way to understand Jeremiah 34 without reading Exodus 21. Jeremiah 34 is Jeremiah's diatribe against the people of the land who hold Hebrew slaves and keep them beyond the six-year mandatory limit, and that's why they're going to be destroyed, and they make a covenant that they won't do it, and then after they make the covenant, they take the slaves back. You read Exodus 21, without that it makes no sense. You can't understand Jeremiah 17. And, the, and his his stricture about doing business on the Sabbath without knowing the laws of the Sabbath from the Torah. Right. By the Torah, you mean the, the Mosaic books, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right. right. Chiefly Exodus and Deuteronomy, but you really need to know the whole thing. You can't understand Hosea 12, where he talks about Jacob wrestling with his brother in the womb, unless you have a Genesis. So you, you can't really... There's no way to study 
any of the prophetic books, the books that I like to call the books of the literary prophets, there's no way to study them and have any grasp on them, either from the outside, which is in a translation, or in isolation of the rest of the Bible. Now, to be honest, you don't need to know Chronicles to understand the literary prophets. You do need to read Lamentations to understand Jeremiah. That's true. You, there are certain books that you'd need to, later books, that you need to incorporate and synthesize with your study of the prophetic works. And this Jeremiah maybe is the most demanding, because Jeremiah, coming at the end of the period, requires that you know everything up until there. And because also he's also the author of Lamentations, or at least the first four chapters, and is happening concurrently with what he's witnessing of the destruction, you have to be able to, to have that in your hands also. It's also important to note that Jeremiah, as an example, will express something in Jeremiah that he leaves out of Lamentations or vice versa. So you have to read them together because they're different genres. It's so powerful precisely because it, it goes so against the grain of how we read texts nowadays, right? Like it's it's it would it would sort of be like saying, in order to understand the latest Elena Ferrante novel, you have to have read The Great Gatsby. Now, anyone who's who's well read and who understands the the depth and beauty of the human condition would tell you, yes, like you actually do have to read all these great works. But, you know, people like to think episodically. And because we're so used to, you know, getting everything on demand, right? Like you don't have to, you don't have to watch this to understand that and that, that to understand this. And I think it's so powerful to say, no, actually, part of what it means to take the Bible seriously as the Bible is to understand that its constituent parts inform each other and are necessary for understanding one another. Um, I think it's so, so, so powerful. So I, I suppose my, my last question for you would be... So before you go to the last question, I'm going to add one other thing in, which is besides love it. the whole picture of the Bible, meaning of the, the constituent parts that are at least relevant to the prophet you want to read, you also have to be familiar with the ancient world. Nothing can be taken out of context, not literary context and not geopolitical context. So I'll get one a quick example. 1 Kings 20 is the war where Aram, Syria, goes to war against Ahab and the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Samaria of Israel. And um, surprisingly and miraculously, Ahab wins the war. And the king, who had been belittling the Israelite army, was now vanquished and assumed that he was going to be taken prisoner and probably killed was told by his father, by his advisors, we hear that the Jewish kings are merciful, why don't you go seek mercy? So he sends a message to the king Ahab that he wants to meet with him. And Ahab comes and says, oh, my brother. And he welcomes him onto the chariot and he makes a deal to, to trade land. And the prophet is very angry at this. And the prophet confronts uh, a prophet, an unnamed prophet, uh, confronts Ahab with this. But if you don't know the political background of this, it makes no sense. Why would a a conqueror greet with such brotherhood the vanquished who had attacked him? But if you know that the, that the next story of them of the two of them is three years later in chapter twenty two, there's another war between Ahab and Aram. But what's happened in the meantime is that there was also a war where Assyria attacked. It's not in the Bible. Where Assyria attacked at Karkar. And Aram and Israel and Ammon and Moab, lots of nations and Judea all formed a coalition to fight against them. 
So with that background, you suddenly understand why Ahab is reaching out to his enemy, because we got a much bigger enemy to deal with. So there's a whole world out there of, of information. And as you pointed out, Ari, over the last hundred years, really much more than the hundred years before that, and even more in the last 50 years, we've become more and more familiar with what the ancient world looked like, both politically, archivally, ceremonially, uh, dress, food, you name it. And so as an example, uh, right now I'm teaching in my 11th grade class um, at Eula Boys High School. Uh, I'm teaching the, uh, the boys the story of Jacob. We're going through that part of Genesis. And in dealing with the very rough issue of Jacob being married to two wives and two sisters and handmaids and having children that way, I directed them to a passage in Hammurabi. And they have to read the certain passages from the Code of Hammurabi to see how widespread this notion of having a surrogate mother as a handmaid was in the Middle East and to give them a sense of the of the broader world. One thing I do with them right away, when you hear a story in, in the Bible, I say right away, okay, what can you infer from this story about common customs of the Middle East? So when in that story, Jacob marries Leah, which he thought was going to be Rachel, and he comes complaining to Lavan, and Lavan turns to him and says, his, Laban, his father-in-law says to him, we don't do such things in our place to have the younger get married before the older. Let her have her week, and then you can marry the other one. So right away, what can you infer from this? said, okay, one, one guy's raised his hand and said, well, you see that they make a wedding feast. There's a wedding feast there. said, second of all, you see that there is such a thing as birth order when it comes to marriages, and that's considered a valid custom. And another guy said, third of all, you see that when a girl gets married, the husband has to devote the first week to her before he can attend to anything else, which, by the way, becomes part of our tradition of the week of what we call Shabbat Brachot, right? And so I do as much as I can to get the students to feel like they're inside the story. It really reminds me of the genius of Rembrandt, for example. Like the genius of Rembrandt is that he places himself in the biblical world. And that's why Rembrandt's paintings of biblical figures are just are so famously human. Right. Uh, because he really sees this as a world that that existed, that you could put yourself in, that you could touch and feel and et cetera. So I, I suppose my, my, my last question then would be, because one of the most common questions I get, or one of the most common phenomena I'd say that I observe is people from outside the Jewish community who become interested in kind of our uh, either techniques for reading the Bible or, or just are interested in conversing with us about how to read this kind of text of texts, whether they're doing it because they come from their own faith tradition or more commonly, and I think more interestingly, because the Bible is a foundational civic text for the United States of America and for the West in general. If you want to understand our civilization as a whole, this particular republic, um, its history, its institutions, its culture, you need to be conversant in the Bible. It would be like trying to understand France without reading Voltaire or England without reading Shakespeare. Like you need to read the Bible to understand the United States. So when people you know, discover our traditions for reading the Bible, which is not new in Western civilization, this is sort of where the Renaissance comes from, is people figuring out, hey, Jews actually know how to read the Bible. It's so interesting, right? So you have Johannes Reichlin, you have, I mean, even Martin Luther, a renowned anti-Semite, but you have, uh, you know, all of the, you have Isaac Newton, you have uh, Ezra Stiles, all the great figures of the Renaissance and then early the early American project, they're all kind of reading and appreciating how Jews read the Bible. So when, when people do this in the contemporary period, what I often find is that people will have discovered that one Jewish person who reads the Bible 
And they'll assume that that person is like the only Jewish person who's ever read the Bible this way without realizing that there's a whole world and a constellation out there. Um, so somebody will find a Rabbi Etchalom and assume that there's a, that that's the only person out there who, you know, reads the Bible in this interesting way. Or someone else will discover another friend of the pod, Rabbi David Foreman, you know, from a couple episodes ago and assume that that's the only person who does that kind of stuff. So in the interests of counteracting this and showing that there is a whole wide world and constellation out there, who's, who's somebody that if you could... Aside from from your own fabulous uh, Between the Lines of the Bible volumes, which I encourage everybody to read, you can order them on Amazon. If you could go out and recommend somebody else that people should just read to familiarize themselves with with this world, who's somebody accessible, maybe English language, you know, that you could recommend to people? A couple of recommendations. One of them, and I don't know if it's been translated, but um, I want to just comment on what you what you asked, because there's a little bit more of a texture to it. The reality is that we're all really part of a community. It's a community that is anchored in Israel. Uh, however, there are members of our community that are as far flung as L.A. and New York and Chicago and Cleveland, uh, Toronto, other places. And we are a community that has no official name or any particular identity. But we can all sort of trace our origins to a couple of great teachers from a generation ago. And the one that comes to mind most is Mordechai Breuer, right? A rap, rap, professor and Rabbi Breuer. B-R-E-U-E-R, for those who are out there. Correct. Thank you. Um, who I had the pleasure of meeting one time. I did not attend his classes. But he's somebody who brought a lot of uh, the disciplines that were popular in the world of biblical criticism and he brought them into the world of traditional study. And he has a, a, a group of students, and again, not no formal affiliation, except that many of them are colleagues and friends, such as Rav Yol Binun and Rav Yaakov Meidan and others, uh, chiefly in Israel, who have been blazing new paths uh, and, and new trails, really, in the direction of understanding the Bible, utilizing as much, as many tools as possible, to make it clear. And I'm fortunate to be part of the next generation. Rabbi Bin Nun is a teacher of mine. Rabbi Elchanan Samet is a teacher of mine. Uh, Rabbi Yol Alitzur, Professor Yol Alitzur, in a whole different area, more of language and geography, is a teacher of mine. And they, I talk with them often to discuss things and issues. One of the things, uh, and, and Dr. Professor Berman is a friend, Rabbi Foreman is a friend, we, and we talk to each other, we interact. We don't right. just interact at seminars where we meet, and I'll say something about that in a minute, but also on a somewhat regular basis. I pick up the phone or send an email and say, you know, I'm, I'm studying this. What do you think about that? Uh, at YU, uh, Professor Chaim Angel is, uh, is, a, is a good friend, and we're in touch all the time. And we share ideas, and, and, I, and I often will share an idea with somebody in that camp because I want to hear, did I miss something? I share a new observation, and I'm missing something. Has somebody already suggested that? Am I missing something in the text, or maybe I'm off base? You want to get a critical response from somebody who is in the same world. In most places outside of Israel, we are in the minority, and we do find ourselves, as you described, somewhat considered the iconoclast, uh, but we do have this kind of loose affiliation. The second piece of the puzzle is that what the subtitle of the Between the Lines series is teachings from the New School of Orthodox Bible Study. I think it's called something like that. 
And people ask me, what's this new school? I said, well, there is no real new school. And it's not the new school. It's not new anymore uh, in Manhattan. But it is the notion is that there is a burgeoning community of students and scholars. And I'm going to put myself somewhere in the middle of that group that is continuing to unearth and observe and put together new ways to understand the Bible based on an original tradition of critical thinking and the influence and infusion of all of this information and disciplines from the outside. Uh, and so what I try to do in that, in that series, which I don't do in my other books, I don't do it in my forthcoming book on Amos, which is coming out from Corin in English this year, God willing, is in the Between the Lines series, I try to show a smattering from each perspective so that people can get a taste of the different kinds of approaches that exist out there. So I have a chapter um, on the use of chiasmus and on literary structure, and a chapter on the keyword, and a chapter on archaeology, but within the context of an essay on a particular passage in the, in the text. So that people can get a flavor for how the different disciplines impact. And for each one, if someone were to ask me, I would say, this is influenced by that teacher. And this is influenced by that teacher. And this is influenced by a synthesis of things that I learned. One of the remarkable teachers that we have today is the head of the Bible department at Bar-Ilan. And his name is Professor Rabbi uh, Yonatan Grossman, uh, also a friend. I'm regular Wonderful. in touch with him. Yoni's a, a, a great guy and very, I mean, every time I'm in Israel, that I'm in his community for Shabbat, I'm invited uh, for Friday night dinner. We have a great time. Uh, it never ends before midnight. Um, and, and just, just the other day, I sent him a voice note, uh, with a, uh, a question about some scheduling thing. And I said, and by the way, one of my students asked the following question about the song of songs. And he sent me back a voice note saying we could take care of it this way. And regarding your question, and he gave a beautiful <laughs> answer. All right. So now the, this community does gather yearly at the, um, Bible study seminar, what a friend of mine liked to call Bible camp. But the Yemei Yun, uh, which take place every summer in Alon Shvut, which is about 15 miles south of Jerusalem, which is where my yeshiva that I attended, and it's the last place I saw your father was at the Yemei Yun last summer. Um, and where we have, in the past, we had 10,000 people attending the Yemei Yun. Since COVID, it's shifted. They're doing more on Zoom. And uh, it is five days of nine to five, literally, nine in the morning to five uh, lectures by the top people in the field. And you kind of walk around. I, I usually, it takes me from about five till 6.30 every day to just decompress, because my head is whirling from everything. And I have a chance to, to speak. Uh, as a matter of fact, the two times ago when I spoke, I mentioned at the very end, uh, your grandfather of blessed memory. Um, I love it. And your mom and your aunt uh, came up to me afterwards and, uh, and we, uh, it was a nice little reunion for a moment. Um, that's amazing yeah but uh but yeah sure i mean your grandfather was one of a kind really something very special and uh, in any case but that's a, a gathering of all of these kindred spirits uh who are studying the bible in this way and teaching it in this way it's really really amazing rabbi Echelom, thank you so much for being here this was absolutely incredible and i i encourage listeners to be on the lookout for uh Rabbi Echelom's commentary in the book of Amos, which will be published by Koren, K-O-R-E-N, Publishers. 
hopefully soon. Please be on the lookout for that. Pre-order. I can assure you it is going to be amazing. Get the Between the Lines of the Bible series. Rabbi Echelon, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Amari. It's great. Please send regards at home and uh, and have a wonderful festive Pesach with lots and lots of great Bible discussions around the table. Amen. I love it. I loved that distinction between text criticism, or critics, on the one hand, and reading a text critically on the other. I'm not shy about the fact that I actually believe in this book and the Bible. I believe Moses wrote the Mosaic books. I believe God gave the law to the Israelites in Mount Sinai. I believe the Bible is divine. I believe in miracles. All of that's true. And I think it's because of this that Jewish tradition for thousands of years has read the Bible with critical thinking, has refused to treat the Bible with kid gloves. We ask questions of it. We probe it. We try to identify contradictions and then resolve them. We debate both with the the text and with each other. And the reason we do this is precisely because we take the Bible seriously as the word of God. We actually believe that the health and goodness of all of society, the very capacity for human flourishing is at stake. And so reading the text both faithfully, piously, and fiercely is essential to how we cultivate our relationship with the very God who gave it to us in the first place and vouchsafe to our children, to our communities, to our very republic itself, the ability to act with justice, with kindness, with goodness, and with godliness. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolute total blast. And while you are here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else to get podcasts and give us a rating because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.